0: Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to be with you. Merry Christmas. And uh, I think we can all sing, the weather outside is frightful. It truly is. However, I will say, now you're going to think I'm really strange, you think that anyway, but uh, uh, I really like cold, wet, rainy days. Makes me want to go to a cabin in the woods somewhere, build a fire, just lay on a couch with a blanket and a book and just take a nap. So, I kind of like these days. Uh, let me ask you, how's it going with all the Christmas preparations? Yeah, yeah. yeah? How many of you um, have already finished everything and you're just waiting for the day now? How many? All right. Oh, okay. All right. Over in Auditorium One, raise your hand so your neighbors can see you. All right. How many of you still don't know how you're going to get it all done? Okay. <laughs> yeah, right how many of you are going to be traveling over the holiday? All right, uh, be safe. How many of you are feeling too busy, too hurried, too hassled with too much to do? (laughs) All right, yeah, I thought so. Too busy, too hassled with too much. Now, I have a confession to make. I'm a very uh, task-oriented person, and I, I know what I want to do. I know what I want to accomplish, and and, and really, I try to do everything as fast as possible. I want to get stuff off my to-do list so I can move on to the, the next thing. Uh, I've often said that one of my biggest problems in life is I'm never where I am because I'm always on my way to somewhere else. Anybody identify with that? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I see you, Debbie. Um, now, listen, I'm not saying I'm proud of that. Do you understand? I'm just saying it's something that I have to work on And I think it's one of the reasons why I don't remember much stuff. Uh, I mean, if you're never really present to the moment, and if you're always on your way to the next thing, it kind of makes sense that you wouldn't be able to remember things. And the biggest problem with all my hurry and haste is that in all the busyness, I become what you might call a God amnesiac. My thoughts and desires and emotions get shaped by me, and how well I'm able to accomplish my sovereign plans for the day. I mean, put simply, I forget God. I forget that Jesus died for me so that I would live for him. I forget that oftentimes God brings things into my life as interruptions, uh, not to frustrate me, not uh, not to just make me mad or whatever, but God brings interruptions to wake me up to the fact of the reality of his presence in me and around me, trying to get me to slow down. But I often, too many times, I, I just forget that Jesus lives in me and that he wants to live his life through me. And when I forget God, I end up demanding that everyone and everything either help me get what I want done or get out of the way. And And uh, Paul Tripp says it this way. The reality is that you and I are are living either a life of demand or a life of surrender. Living a life of demand or a life of surrender. We're driven by our own agendas and the subtle or not so subtle demand that no one or nothing get in the way of what we want to happen on a given day. And when something or someone does get in our way, our demandingness is exposed by like the flash of anger we have in the traffic that's delaying us or the irritation we experience when someone disagrees with us or the impatience we experience when somebody causes us uh, to have to wait and we quickly forget that God rules over every moment, every situation, every relationship for his glory and our good. And when we forgive that, we're overtaken with anxiety and anger or some other negative emotion that uh, uh, causes us to do and say things we later regret. You know what I'm talking about? You know, I, now, I hear you. You're thinking, well, thanks, Charlie. But what does all this have to do with the baby Jesus born in a barn in Bethlehem? I mean, that's what we should be talking about, right? I mean, after all, this is Christmas. This is the uh, Word made flesh. And I'm telling you, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So stay with me, and you'll see how it all ties in in just a minute. If this is your first time with us, welcome. Uh, If you want to know more about us, I'd encourage you to drop by our guest services, Welcome Center over in the Commons in the other building. And there's some nice people over there will help uh, get you acquainted with what a fellowship church is all about. But right now, we are in uh, a a four-week Advent study that we've entitled... Word made flesh. And theologically speaking, we're talking about the amazing, mind-blowing, fundamental truth of Christianity that we refer to as the incarnation, meaning that in Jesus, God became human. God became flesh and blood and bone. God became one of us and lived among us. I like how pastor author Sam Storms writes. He talking about this, he fleshes it out for us. He says, the word became flesh. God became human. The invisible became visible. The untouchable became touchable. Eternal life experienced temporal death. The transcendent one descended and drew near. The unlimited became limited. The infinite became finite. The immortal became mortal. The unbreakable became fragile. Spirit became matter. Eternity inner time. The independent became dependent and the almighty became weak. Max Locato put it this way. In one instance, the omnipotent one made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world by a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus, holiness sleeping in a womb the creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows and elbows and two kidneys and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. Now, Paul, in 1 Timothy 3.16, he says it this way in the New Living Translation. He says, without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body. Now, at first, these great incarnational realities were told in simple gospel stories. And listen as I, re- as I read part of the Christmas story from Matthew chapter 1. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit and she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took Mary as his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, here in this simple Christmas story, we see very quickly that the birth of Jesus was no ordinary birth, because we're told, number one, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, which speaks to the fact that he's fully God and fully human. Number two, he would be called um, Emmanuel, which means God with us, again, referring to his deity. And three, uh, his human name would be Jesus, meaning the one who saves us from our sins, which is something only God can do and that is to forgive us and save us from our sins. Now, we just sang about it, right? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Reasons for the incarnation. all All through the New Testament There are many reasons given as to why God incarnated himself in Jesus. He came so God and sinners would be reconciled. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to remove the fear of death, as Jim talked about last week. He came to reveal what God is really like. He came to make all things new. He came to usher in the kingdom of God. But I'd say that right up at the top of those reasons we typically think most about how Jesus came to save us from our sins. And for most of us, when we hear Jesus came to save us from our sins, we immediately think that Jesus saves us from our sins in order to take us to heaven when we die. And we take great comfort and joy in the amazingly gracious fact that Jesus came to save us from our sins so we can have eternal life so we can go to heaven when we die. And that is right, of course, and for that we are eternally thankful, of course, that because of Jesus coming, because of his sinless life, his atoning death, his victorious rising from the dead, because he ascended back to the Father and has sent his spirit to live inside of all who place their faith and hope in him, we are saved from the penalty of sin, And by God's grace through faith, we will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus and with all of those who died in faith before us. Yes, amen. And that future hope, that future hope is to be a serious, motivating influence on how we live now. But there is more to being saved from our sins than that. Now look at Galatians 1, 3 through 5. Now, by the way, I'm going to do something very different. Um, This is not typically my way of preaching. I'm not going to anchor my message today in one key passage of Scripture like we normally do. Rather, I'm going to take a more theological approach to our study of the Incarnation. And so we're going to be looking at quite a few passages to unpack and understand Something about the incarnation that maybe you've never heard, or maybe you just never thought much about. So stay with me. Galatians 1, 3 3 through 5, Paul's writing to his friends in Galatia, and in his opening greeting, he writes this, chapter 1, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look at this. Look at how he describes here what it means to be saved from our sins, Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, this present evil, he, Jesus gave himself for our sins, he died for our sins, not just to forgive our sins so we can go to heaven when we die, but to save us right here, right now, from the sinful, self-centered way of life in this present age. I'm saying that Christmas, the incarnation, is about rescue. It is about deliverance. It is about saving us from our sins now. I'm saying that Jesus saves us from our anger, our impatience, our lack of kindness, our pride, our selfishness, our demandedness, our lust for things that God knows will destroy us. And in saving us, not only from the penalty of sin, but of the power of sin, he also wants to save us from the negative consequences of our sins, the misery and unhappiness and despair and bitterness and guilt that often festers in our heart when sin takes us captive. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you carrying around guilt this Christmas? Are you trapped in a cycle of anger? Resentment, bitterness. Are you weighed down in misery and despair because your pride won't let you admit where you've been wrong? Are you demanding that everyone and everything fit into your agenda? What I'm saying is Christmas is about Jesus coming to save you from all of that. Christmas is about Jesus coming to rescue from the corrupting influence, the corrupting self-centered influence of this culture that is hell-bent on destroying itself and hell-bent on destroying you. But the question is, how? How does Jesus save us from our sins and the destructive influence of our sins now? And to answer that question, we need to look at something that I'm calling the forgotten truth of Christmas or the forgotten truth of the incarnation. And the forgotten truth is another very important lesson or a very important reason as to why Jesus came. You ready for this? Let me put it this way. God incarnated himself in Jesus so that Jesus would incarnate himself in you. God incarnated, you say, well, I never heard that before. Well, I never heard it until I wrote it down last week. God incarnated himself in Jesus so that Jesus would incarnate himself in you. You see, there are actually two incarnations associated with the coming of Jesus into this world. The first incarnation is God incarnating himself in Jesus. That's what Christmas is all about. The second incarnation is Jesus incarnating himself in you. That's what Pentecost is all about. So there is a Christmas Pentecost connection. The forgotten truth of Christmas is that there's a double incarnation. God incarnating himself in Jesus and Jesus incarnating himself in you through the person of the Holy Spirit. And the two are vitally interconnected that God incarnated himself in Jesus so that Jesus would be incarnated in you. You with me? Christianity is incarnational, and it cannot be understood outside of that reality. In her book, The Healing Presence, author Leanne Payne calls this powerful, life-transforming truth incarnational reality. And by that phrase, she's talking about how the incarnation is to shape how we live each day, how we are to wake up every morning, how we go about our day. Thinking, recalling to mind, another lives in me. That through his spirit, Christ lives in me to live his life through me. One more time, slowly. Christ lives in you to live his life through you. And the Bible talks about this reality all the time. The, the New Testament, it's on, almost on every page. It's, just not, it's not said like this. But when you read John 15 and you read about abiding in Christ, that's exactly what we're talking about. Walking with God, being led by the spirit, keeping in step with the spirit, the fruit of the spirit is, which means the fruit of Christ that the fruit of the spirit thing is not about love, joy. I need to be more loving. Oh, Holy Spirit, help me be more loving. Help me. It's not, it's not that it's Jesus is more loving And when Jesus lives through me, his love and his joy and his peace and his patience and his kindness come through me. Or said another way, said another way. It simply means being conscious of Christ's moment by moment presence with me and within me and his desire to live his life through me. That's incarnational reality. Okay, but how does incarnational reality this forgotten truth of Christmas that you're talking about, how does that work to save us from this present evil age? Great question. Glad you asked. Now, in the first message in this Word Became Flesh series, Jim Thompson asked a question that captured me, captured my mind, and I've been thinking about it ever since. He asked, what makes the incarnation both powerful and personal? You remember that if you were here? What makes the incarnation both powerful and personal? Such a great question. And when we study the scriptures about the incarnation, I do think that that question can be answered in a couple of different but related ways, which I'm gonna answer differently from Jim in the rest of this talk. Then in the second message of the series, Jason preached a great message from Colossians 1 on the preeminence of Christ. And one of the things that hit me from, this, from his sermon was how he read Colossians 1 15 through 20 by putting in the name of Jesus for all the he and him pronouns you remember that let me reread it uh reread the passage the same way he did as a way of review and to move us forward uh, Colossians 1 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation for by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth Visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in bodily form and through Jesus to reconcile to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' Christ. Now, I love that because it's so powerful. Watch this. The Jesus who Matthew and and Luke wrote about being born in a cattle trough in a backwater town of Bethlehem, the Jesus who lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death for our sins, the Jesus who rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven, the Jesus who reconciles us to God and in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, this Jesus, the preeminent one, has come to live in you. Now, if you have Jesus, this Jesus living in you, that what does that say about how we're to live our lives? Like, what kind of power is that resident in us? Now, Paul calls this another great mystery. Remember 1 Timothy three sixteen. without question, this is a great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body. That's the first incarnation. Well, right here in Colossians, down in verse 25, Colossians 1:25, he talks about the second incarnation. Look at this. Paul, this is my paraphrase. This is the CBT version, Charlie Boy translation. Um, God, Paul's writing, he says, God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. That message, this mystery, was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted us to know that the riches of the glory of Christ are for all people. And this is the mystery. Christ lives in you. Oh my goodness, this is so powerful and it's so personal. Jesus, the preeminent one, lives in you. He is with you, but he is within you. This one who has all power in heaven and earth. This one who created all things. He lives in you. He's come to dwell inside of you. And just as it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of the Godhead, all the fullness of deity to dwell in Jesus in bodily form, it's also the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to live in your bodily form. Double incarnation. Peter talks about the same thing in 2 Peter 1.4. He writes... Again, CP, CBT translation, my paraphrase. His divine power has given us everything we need to live godly lives through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, his glory and goodness, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, through that, uh, those promises, believing those promises, you may be, look at it, partakers of, of the divine nature. Now look at the next line. Having escaped the corruption that's in the world by evil desires. Now you see how it all ties together. This ties right back to the Galatians passage I started with. You say incarnational reality is the presence of God, the presence of Christ within us. Not just Christ being with us but within us by his indwelling spirit now this is what you always need to remember always 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 remember that the holy spirit is the spirit of christ that the spirit living in you is christ living in you theologically speaking you could talk about this as christological pneumatology Our pneumatological Christology, meaning never, never, never separate the Holy Spirit from Christ in you or Christ in you from the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 14, verse 20. He was telling his disciples that he's getting ready to go back to his father and he says to them, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. I will come to you. And then in verse 20, he says, on that day, you will realize that I am in the father and you are in me and I am in you. That's the second incarnation right there. On that day, on what day? On the day we call the day of Pentecost. On that day, I will send from my father, my very own spirit to live inside everyone who puts their faith in me, and on that day, you'll realize how everything I taught you ties together—that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. You'll say, you'll see how I am and have always been in the Father. That's the first incarnation, and you'll understand what it means for me to be, uh, for you to be in me, and me to be in you. That's the second incarnation, and again, that is both powerful and personal. Now, my purpose in this message is that from this day forward. Whenever you hear the word incarnation, you'll think of two incarnations, not just one. God incarnated himself in Jesus so that Jesus would be incarnated in you. John Calvin understood this. He wrote, the son of God became the son of man and received what is ours. That's the first incarnation in which Jesus took our sin to himself and he took and he, and he, the son of God became the son of man and received what is ours in such a way that he transferred to us what is his, his righteousness, second incarnation that comes through the indwelling Holy Spirit, making that which was, is his by nature to become ours by grace. <laughs> That's double incarnation, incarnational reality. Through the first incarnation, Jesus made the second incarnation possible. How so? By transferring to us his very own spirit, making what was his by nature ours through grace. Wow. Croatian theologian Miroslav, Miroslav Volf, and Jim passed this little quote on to me, because uh, this is the kind of book that Jim would read. Um, <laughs> But uh, Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf writes about this in his book, The Home of God. The Home of God. This is exactly what he's talking about in this book. Because first, Volf writes about how the word became flesh and dwelt among us, not in a temple, but as one particular individual, Jesus Christ. That's the first incarnation. He says, in Jesus, God became incarnate and dwelt among us. But then he goes on to say this, God's coming to dwell in Christ leads to a new form of God's presence in the world. God dwells not only among the people, but also in them. And he goes on to say Christ's whole mission was aimed at just this kind of indwelling. C.S. Lewis understood this. In fact, he wrote about it many times in his books, in his letters, and in his great fictional stories. In Mere Christianity, Lewis writes this. When Christians say that the Christ life is in them, they do not simply mean something mental or moral. They, when they speak of, of Christ or, or being in Christ or Christ being in them, this is not simply a way of saying that they are thinking about Christ or trying to copy him. They mean that Christ is actually operating through them, that the whole mass of Christians are the physical organism through which Christ acts, that we are his fingers and muscles and the cells of his body. And he basically says, our real selves are all waiting for us in him. Lewis says, until you've given up yourself to him, you will not have a real self. And he's talking about surrender. Until you surrender yourself to him, letting him live his life through you, he says, you will not have a real self because your real selves are only found in union with Christ, close quote. Listen, because of Jesus' birth, death, resurrection, ascension, and his sending his very own spirit to incarnate us, the word continues to be made flesh in all who trust him for salvation. This is double incarnation. This is incarnational reality. Now listen, no other religion makes this claim. No other religion is this personal. All the other religions of the world are based on you trying your hardest and doing your best to obey the rules and rituals that they teach. All other religions are outside in. Here's the rules. Here's the rituals. Try harder to do better to keep your behavior in line. That's not Christianity. All other real religions teach that God is up there, out there, somewhere. And you're responsible to try hard to please him and keep him on your good side. Christianity teaches that when you trust Christ for salvation... God is pleased to send his Holy Spirit to incarnate you, which is Christ in you. And Jesus lives inside you to live his life through you. Christianity is inside out. Simply put, living in line with incarnational reality, the reality of Christ in me, living his life through me. That's what Christianity is all about. This is not some side teaching. This is the teaching. It's the center. All right, back to Galatians where we begin. And let's focus on how this all works itself out in life. We began in Galatians 1-5 where Paul tells us that Jesus gave himself for us, that he would rescue us, save us from the destructive influences of this present evil age. This age that's opposed to God. Now, fast forward to Galatians 4-4, and this is where Paul speaks of the first and second incarnation. Actually, this is a great Christmas passage. And when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions as sons, because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father you see that Paul is expounding incarnational theology right here God incarnated himself in Jesus so that Jesus would be incarnated in us and that's what makes us sons and daughters But still how does it work itself out in life Push rewind now go back to Galatians 2:20 This is the key verse This is I wake up every morning quoting this verse to myself I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now you can't say it any clearer than that. How do we live out the Christian life? How do we follow Christ? Well, let me let's do it in the NLT. It might be a little clearer. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, all too often, we'll read over those verses and we don't take them seriously because it just sounds like a bunch of religious gobbledygook. We breeze right past them because we think they're too high or too deep for us to understand. But Paul's not talking about some higher level of Christianity here. He's writing about the normal Christian life. He's telling us what life for a follower of Jesus is actually like, which is Christ in me living his life through me. And Paul talks about this idea of Christ living his life in me and through me over 65 times. He just talks about it in different kinds of ways, like as as I said earlier. It's actually what sanctification is all about. It's the process of becoming who Jesus has made us to be. Now, I want to show you one more passage of Scripture here that drives this home. Romans 8, verses 9 through 11, Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So right here, we see that the whole Trinity has been incarnated in us. The Spirit of God is in us, verse 9. The Spirit of Christ is in us, verse 10. The Holy Spirit is in us, verses 9 and 11. You see in this, Paul lived in constant awareness of this incarnational reality. He lived in the conscious moment-by-moment reality of Christ living in him to live his life through him. He was ever conscious of the ever-present Christ living in him and through him. Or said another way, Paul desired to live out his faith by practicing the presence of Christ in every moment, in every situation, and every relationship in which he found himself. And that's how we're to live our lives as followers of Christ as well. Now, how do we do that? Well, I've been, I've been reading and reflecting on all of this since the beginning of October, So this is something I've been learning to do more of lately. And actually I wanted to preach on all this as much for myself as for you. I wanted to see if I could distill it all down to where I could actually understand it myself. So I'm preaching to myself this morning and you're just getting to listen in. So now my goal is simple, to learn with you how to practice the presence of God better in every part of my life. And by practice I mean discerning and developing habits of the awareness of God's presence if not all day every day at least much more often than most of us typically do or how I have lived in the past now from everything I've read I can tell you there's no magic formula but I can tell you that what I'm talking about takes about a second to do but it'll also take the rest of your life to live It doesn't require you to sign up for a Bible study or work through a a workbook. It's easy, but it does require some effort until it becomes a habit. And then it'll be the most important, most fruitful, most enjoyable thing you do. I'm still working at cultivating the habit. Now, if you want to dig more deeply into all of this, I recommend you get a copy of Ken Boa's book, Life in the Presence of God, it's a great book that unpacks what I'm calling incarnational reality and the forgotten truth of Christmas, but he doesn't use those terms. But Boa focuses on helping you understand what it looks like to become more consciously aware of Christ in you, to live his life through you, and he introduces you to people who develop that habit and how it shaped their lives and ministries. People like Brother Lawrence and Frank Laubach, a missionary, Thomas Kelly. As I said, there's no magic formula, but I'm going to give you one way that you can begin to cultivate the awareness of incarnational reality. And and this one thing takes the form of a question and an invitation. Here's the question. How would your life be different if Jesus was living his life through you? Now, that's not quite the same as what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do is like, I gotta think about out here what I learned about what Jesus does, and then I've gotta take that outside in and bring it in and try hard to conform my life to that. It's not behavior modification. The question is more like a prayerful invitation. Jesus, live your life through me. Let's make a question more personal. If Jesus were living his life through me. How would that affect how I respond to people and the events in my life? If Jesus were living his life through me. How would that affect how I respond to the people and events in my life? Now let me run some scenarios. Someone has just said something that's hurt you or angered you. You're tempted to let him have it. The question is, if Jesus were living his life through you, how would that affect how you respond to that person? Or closely related. You find it hard to forgive someone for something they did to you. And you're tempted to justify your unforgiveness because of the magnitude of the wrong they did. And besides that, you would never do that to anybody. Now, it's not just simply a matter of trying to forgive as you have been forgiven, as we're told in scripture. We need to know that because that tells us something about Jesus. It is that, but it's more than that. It's inviting Jesus to live his life through you and extend his forgiveness through you to that person. A person you can't on your own bring yourself to forgive. So the question is, if Jesus were living his life through me, How easy would it be for him to forgive and to extend grace to that person? Now, extending forgiveness doesn't mean that you all all of a sudden start trusting an untrustworthy person, you understand. It just means that you don't carry around that bitterness and that unforgiveness towards that person. You find yourself in a difficult circumstance. You're tempted to take control and to try to make something happen. You're overwhelmed with anxiety. You want to get your way. Question. If Jesus were living his life through you, how would that affect how you speak and act in that difficult moment or that difficult time? Or let's say you failed in some way and maybe you're tempted to beat yourself up and put yourself down. Maybe you're embarrassed and humiliated. Maybe you're overwhelmed with guilt, question, If Jesus were living his life in me and through me, knowing that the Jesus in me is loving and forgiving and uncondemning, knowing that there's nothing I can do to make him love me more, nothing I can do to make him love me less, how would that affect your ability to forgive yourself, pick up the pieces, and keep moving forward? You find yourself with an incredible opportunity. Maybe you're tempted to jump right in without counting the cost. Maybe you're afraid to take the risk. Question is, if Jesus were living his life through you, how would that affect how you evaluate opportunities? How would that affect the decisions you make and the risks that you're willing to take? You feel stuck in the daily routine of babies and busyness and boredom or maybe just mundane, everyday business. Question is... If Jesus is living his life in you and through you, how would that affect how you think about the mundane, monotonous, unexciting parts of your life? If he were living his life through you, would it not be possible to experience joy and contentment in unexciting times? God brings someone across your path who needs your help. You're tempted to look the other way. You're tempted to think, well, they got themselves into this mess, they can get themselves out. But then the question is if Jesus was living his life through me, how would that affect how I relate to this person or how I think about this person? How does Jesus think about a person like this? You hear a sermon about living on mission with Jesus, and you think, yeah, I know I should live on mission with Jesus. The Great Commission says I should, and Jason says I should. I'll try harder to do better. But by next Sunday, you've forgotten all about that. And besides this Sunday, the preacher gives you another list of things that you should do and and you feel overwhelmed. Question is, if Jesus were living his life through you, if you were constantly inviting Jesus to live through you, how would that affect your interactions with your neighbor or your coworker or the people you cross paths with every day? Or put put it this way, living on mission with Jesus would mean that he's living out his mission through you, not you trying trying harder to live on mission with him. Are you seeing this? This is a paradigm shift. And it all comes down to one thing. Are you willing or unwilling to let Jesus live his life through you? Are you willing to daily invite him to live his life through you. And as I said, I'm praying, I'm praying this every morning before I get out of bed and, I'm, and I'm tr- um, the effort is trying to just, to, that one second of trying to recall and bring Jesus back into the picture and invite Jesus into this current moment and follow his lead. Because here's the deal, here's the deal. If we don't practice the presence of Jesus like this, We will practice the corrupting influences of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The corrupting influences that Jesus came to save you from. Yeah, it takes effort to cultivate this mindset. It takes effort, but not the effort of trying to please God. Not the effort of trying harder to do better to please God. The effort is to remember and keep recalling to mind that Christ lives in me to live his life through me. The effort is to not allow myself to become a God amnesiac and go about my day as if God has nothing to do with that day. The effort is to constantly invite Jesus to live his life through me right here, right now. I think it's exactly what Paul meant when he said, For me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. For me to live is for Christ to live in me, living his life through me. For me to live is Christ. That's exactly what that means. Now I'm just going to invite you to bow your head and I'm going to give you just a, a quiet moment to begin to cultivate the mindset of living in conscious awareness, moment by moment conscious awareness that Jesus lives in you to live his life through you. I'm going to invite you to invite Jesus into this moment simply by praying, Lord Jesus, I do want you to live your life through me. Lord Jesus, I don't know what all that actually means, but I'm I'm tired of trying harder to do better. Lord Jesus, I invite you to live your life through me. Right here, right now. And then, when I walk out the door today, and as I go back into everyday life, each and every day, Lord Jesus, I want you to live your life through me. And we'll give you all the glory. And honor and praise you rightly deserve. And we pray this in your name. Amen.